Hey y'all, this is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, what's next for American democracy? Hey y'all, from NPR, you are listening to It's Been a Minute. I'm Sam Sanders. So, uh, what a week. You've seen it. We all saw it. On Wednesday, Congress was set to certify the November election results and make President-elect Joe Biden's victory official. But a pro-Trump mob stormed the Capitol, and for hours they interrupted the vote tally. It began earlier in the day. There was a rally on the other side of the mall, and President Trump seemed to instigate the siege. All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing, and stolen by the fake news media. That's what they've done and what they're doing. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. And later, Bedlam. The Capitol vandalized, members of Congress hiding in their chambers, then rushed off to undisclosed locations. Five people dead, a citywide curfew all over D.C., and so many questions about what happens next. Now, I should note here that we're taping this Friday morning, but to unpack all those questions and try and make sense of this moment as best we can, I want to bring in two friends and colleagues who have been covering D.C. and politics and Congress for years. Two of the best in the biz. And I don't just say that because I work with them. Ayesha Roscoe, White House correspondent for NPR, and Susan Davis, congressional correspondent for NPR. Welcome to you both. Hey, Sam. Do we lose Ayesha? Someone else has to say hello. <laughs> oh. No, I am <laughs> muted. Aisha, you know? I muted myself. Hey. <laughs> <Okay>. Hey. <laughs> Happy 2021. Question mark? Yeah. yeah. I yeah. guess. Yeah. It's what a little... start to the year. You know, Aisha, Sue, you both cover politics, have been doing so for a while. I want to start just by asking you both, you know, at the end of what feels like a truly unprecedented week, how surreal has this been for y'all? I'm still watching the you know, TV screen saying, what just happened? I, I think it's just been heartbreaking. You know, I have worked in the Capitol for the better part of the past 20 years, and I love that building. And I think when I say that, I, I don't want people to confuse it with saying that, you know, you love politics or you love the people in it. I mean, lots of crazy things happen in there. But that building itself is it's like one of our national treasures. You know, it's so much bigger yeah. than any moment. And it's like watching the Washington Monument or the Lincoln Monument be destroyed. It would just be horrifying to watch, not just for what it symbolizes to this country, but what it symbolizes to the world. And that was one of the things when I was watching it play out in real time on Wednesday was just thinking like, my God, what does this look like to the world to see this happening? And so mm. it's been hard. I mean, the, the the Capitol is a living museum. It's an office building, but it's a living museum to democracy. And it just got basically spat on and, yeah. and vandalized. It, it yeah. was shocking to see. Even, I mean, President Trump, covering President Trump these past four years, I've covered every day of this uh, presidency. And there have been lots of moments where it was like, uh, you know, he's destroying norms, he's doing, and he has gone up to this line. And sometimes he would pull back when things got really hot. And this time, it just seems like 
he was going with this alternate reality and using the language that he always uses, which has violence in it. And this time, without him lifting a finger, his audience, who always connect the dots, they know what he's saying. They went and they carried it out. Yeah. You know, what was so weird for me, it, it, it was as if like half of my brain said, how in the world could this happen? And the other half of my brain said, well, of course this happened. Should the American public be that surprised by what ultimately happened at the Capitol this week? No, I I don't think they should. I, I, I can understand why they would be surprised. But ultimately, when you bring in someone who wants to take all the guardrails off, um, wants to, you know, drive, do 100 in, <laughs> you know, in the slow lane, this is what happens. Yeah. There's also an element to this that is complicating all of it, too, is that there has been these radicalizing forces in American politics outside of Trump, but Trump has also fueled them instead of tried to put them out. Think of things like the QAnon conspiracy movement, where there was a lot of these protesters who have been drawn to politics and drawn to this movement through internet radicalization and through conspiracy theories. And part of what fueled that was a president validating them at several times in his presidency and really driving people closer to that extremism. And that is one of the things I think about when I say, you know, what comes after this is there is a real radicalized movement in this country, largely made up of white Americans, although not exclusively, that isn't going to go away after January 20th. And I don't know how that country contends with it, especially if Trump, who still holds a lot of power in American politics, continues to do the things he's done to fuel and encourage essentially radicals. Yeah. And what's so bad about it is that Donald Trump has given himself a window to keep complaining and keep yelling even once he leaves office. He has yet to actually say that he lost the election. So for his most diehard supporters, he can continue to gripe about that for as long as he wants. And there'll be some folks that always go along with him, regardless of him being in the White House or not. Yeah. And I think that that's important. You can't have someone sitting there. You can't play along with it, Mm -hmm. which is what I think some or which what some Republicans basically have been doing. You can't say or try to humor it or say, well, I'm sure there was something that went wrong somewhere. Um, You know, you can't do that and then expect people to not take you all the way seriously. Exactly. Like people need some type of closure. And if you're telling them, no, well, possibly the, the election was stolen for, or telling them, no, the election was stolen from you. People take that and, and they go. They, they, run they, with they it. take that. Yeah, they yeah. run with it. And if something is stolen from you and the forces, the, the people in charge won't do anything about it, then you have to have the courage to do something. And that's what struck me with. President Trump, he kept talking about courage. Yeah, and, and someone fighting. has to have yeah. courage in fighting. You have to have courage and courage this. That type of language. Yeah. 
You're telling people to do something. Well, and it's like he actually at one point told them to walk down to the Capitol well, yes, from and, the ellipse. And he said, we are going to walk to the Capitol. Yeah. He didn't go nowhere. <laughs> he sure <laughs> did he not. Kept, he sure did he not. Saying, and I was asking, like, my colleagues, like, we were in the Slack. I'm like, is he going to walk down there? Because he kept saying, we're going to walk down. We're yeah. going to walk down. Yeah. But he was using the royal we. Yeah. <laughs> and he didn't He didn't go anywhere. It's And, and you know... I don't need us to rehash the events of this week. Everyone saw it. We saw it over and over again. It's painful to even kind of recreate those visuals in our minds right now. But I do want to take this moment to kind of look forward. You know, Aisha, you cover the White House. Donald Trump has about two weeks left in office. Is there any way to know what those two weeks look like? Members of his own administration are quitting in protests. Others are saying they're going to stay, but they won't go through with Trump's orders if they're extreme. Uh, What does a White House look like and what can they do for these final two weeks when it's in that kind of shape? There's no way to sugarcoat it. It, it, This is a bad situation Mm. um, because we don't know what's going to happen. And anyone who tells you they know, they're not telling you the truth. Mm. There's a question of, I, I think, who is in charge yeah. And the president is not talking. Like, he's not even doing live speeches. He's not doing live remarks. He's not doing public events other than the speech that he did, you know, to the people that ended up rioting. Yeah. Uh, he, other than that, he's not talking to the press. So you're not able to even ask him a question. His press secretary is not taking She's public not taking questions. questions. Yeah. How do you know what is even going on? Yeah. Well, and then there are other things that we also don't know if they're going to happen or not. You know, everyone is talking about invoking the 25th Amendment, which is a process by which Congress and the cabinet can remove a president from office. But it's hard to even know if that can happen or will happen because cabinet members are dropping like flies. Yeah. I mean, the 25th Amendment is probably not going to happen. It would require Vice President Mike Pence and a majority of the cabinet to sign a letter saying that the president was incapable of the duties of the office and send a letter to Congress, and that would allow Pence to become acting vice president. I think it's a little bit of a political fantasy to think that's going to happen. It seems clear that the cabinet secretaries that are truly upset are just leaving, like Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, both left citing the president's incitement of what happened on Wednesday. But then you also have Democrats in the House looking at moving forward on additional articles of impeachment over what happened. Which also seems improbable. It is improbable, but more possible because they have more control over that process. But Democrats control the House and they have the power and they can move fast if they want to. And they could, in theory, uh, pass another impeachment resolution before Inauguration Day. It would put Trump on record as being the first president in history to ever be impeached twice. And that is at least a kind of political punishment that I think a lot of lawmakers think is necessary. There is an overwhelming sense, and I think that includes many Republicans that we've heard from this week, that you just can't let this happen without some repercussions. You know, for years now, we've seen the Republican Party about to crack over Donald Trump. And then they eventually coalesce behind Donald Trump. And they've always been a much more unified party, ultimately, than Democrats. Is there a situation where once Trump is finally gone, they try to forget about it and become joined in opposition to Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that that is the upside for Republicans now is that they have a common enemy. They're the minority party in Washington, or they mm. will be soon when Democrats take over the Senate. Democrats will have full control of Washington. Republicans are kind of better at being at the minority. They're better at the tactics hmm. because the minority isn't about the burden of governing. The minority is about mm. fighting. And the Republican Party is pretty good at street combat in American politics. And if they don't have the burden of advancing a legislative agenda, of getting the votes, and they can just be against stuff, that is a familiar and comfortable position for them. And I think they might be able to find unity that might not otherwise exist being against the Democratic Party. That being said, I think there are still many Republicans who are tired of the way Washington has been running and would really like to try to get some stuff done. And if you take Joe Biden at his word, he is a president who wants to do things with Republican support and wants to reach across the aisle and wants to be a healing president, which is going to be yeah. really hard to do. But if you take him at his word and that's sincere, there, you know, there's always got to be a little bit of hope here, Sam. Yeah. Well, so this is my next question for both of you. I was very surprised by the tone that Republicans like Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham took that night after the siege when they basically said, Joe Biden's the next president. We support that. This has to happen. It seemed to indicate that we might strangely see some performative bipartisanship in D.C., at least in the first few weeks of Biden's term. What is the potential that there will be a little kumbaya going on just to wash the memory of this week away? It seems like there could be at now. I don't want to say that they're going to get a lot done. But what I what stood out to me, though, it does seem like now that this has happened, you probably can't go to immediately back into your corners. Right. Like after this has happened, with, you know, and the the concern that will be around inauguration and all of that, I think you probably will see some uh, at least symbolic reconciliation, right? Especially because that's what Joe Biden wants. He wants this kumbaya moment. So that that would be the opportunity. I also was struck by, you know, Lindsey Graham, who seems to know where the wind blows. He seems to yeah. have that feeling. He's a and survivor. He's I'll give him that. Yeah. <laughs> and, he, and he's, you know, like now, you know, complimenting Joe Biden, right? Uh, yeah. So I think uh, you'll, you'll see that that's, you know, that's the way things are moving right now. But yeah. we also have a very different Congress than we had before, where we're going to have Democrats in control narrowly, but yeah. they will be in control. And don't forget, you know, the backdrop of all this is we're still in the middle of a horrible pandemic that is going oh, to require yeah. <laughs> more congressional action. Joe Biden, his team is working on another big package that he wants to get through Congress. I do think in some ways, if you just looking at this as like political brass tacks, I think he comes in with a little bit more leverage to get through what he wants to get through in mm. the first 100 days of his administration. I don't think yeah. a Republican posture of fight, 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 fight right now is going to necessarily serve the interests of the party. And there's always a little bit, especially in the Senate of like, okay, let them come in, let's have a win, and then we'll go on about our days. So I'd yeah. say at least when it comes to pandemic relief, to helping people to get through this pandemic, there is that's the thing that I think still most people on Capitol Hill want to get us on the other end of this pandemic and and get back to yeah. some semblance of normal American and economic life. And then we can go back to our corners. All right, listeners, coming up, why this mob on the Capitol was not that surprising at all and why it's maybe at the core of who we are as a country. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Best Fiends. 
If you find yourself choosing the longest checkout line, that can only mean one thing. You've downloaded Best Fiends, the five-star rated mobile puzzle game, which means where others see a hassle, all you see is a chance to play one more level a few more times. Turn dull moments into pockets of fun. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. LifeKit is always here with tips about personal finance and health, but also for those tough discussions, like what to tell your kids when the news gets scary. Listen now to the LifeKit podcast from NPR. You know, one thing that I'm wondering about is what happens to the insurrectionists? You know, they didn't just storm the Capitol in D.C. There is word and worry that other state capitals across the country might suffer the same fate. And capitals across the country have been on high alert and lockdown in some instances throughout the week. Will these most diehard Trump supporters who are prepared to storm the building How long will they be around? How are politicians and our politics preparing for that? You know, what's so interesting is I think so much of the outrage or not so much. A lot of the outrage is not just the fact that they walked into the building, but how easily they walked out. Right. Mm -hmm. That so many people were were escorted out in some instances by police. And yeah. and that image, I think, in some ways, enraged so many people watching this more. Just seeing them waltz out of the building in some ways was more infuriating. There have been arrests. Uh, the FBI is investigating. Members in leadership in Congress say that there will be more. But we don't know the answer to that yet, Sam. And I think that this is going to be one of the challenging things about this event and how people process it is who gets arrested, who gets prosecuted, and why? And will it be enough to make the rest of the country, the majority of the country that was horrified by this event, feel like justice was done? Yeah. And, you know, now we're hearing reports that the folks that are supposed to protect the Capitol really underprepared for the potential of violence at that rally this week. And it stands in stark contrast to the way that, say, Black Lives Matter protesters retreated in D.C. just a few months ago. There's talk of some heads rolling. You know, uh, the chief of Capitol Police has stepped down. I think others might as well. Is there going to be accountability in the folks that are charged with protecting the Capitol? Do we know it all yet? There, there have been a number of resignations, right, Sue? There, there yeah. are people, and, and I'm sure there will be more. I mean, you know, you have to look at this in a post-9-11 world, which mm. we're so far away from 9-11 now, but this was the fear, right, that you could have terrorists take over the Capitol. So to have this happen, I, I think there has to be um, huge repercussions for security because these were not black or brown people taking over the Capitol, which I think was the big concern. Um, but here you go where you have underestimated what the threat was. And people have been saying over and over again that right wing or white supremacists, white nationalist groups are a threat. They are a domestic Domestic terrorism threat. And people have looked the other way or have seemed to not take it seriously. Mm-hmm. And here you go and you see an outcome. And I, I you know, I, I think it is, although some people do 
argue that, oh, well, everyone would have been treated the same. I think that just on its face. I really don't think that's the case. On its face. Yeah. On its face. It's just, you know, it's ridiculous. I mean, there's no way this would have happened with other groups. No. Well, and what I found so, I want to be nice and say interesting, but what I found upsetting was the number of folks on both sides of the aisle this week who said, well, this is not who we are. This is not who we are. It's like, "Mm, I think we've been like this for a long time. And the symbolism even present at the Capitol underscored how much this strain of mostly white anger has been built into the very fabric of this nation. Like, you'll recall outside of the Capitol on Wednesday, there was a noose. You'll recall some of the folks that stormed the Capitol had on shirts that said Civil War. There was a man. They had Confederate flags. They had Confederate flags. This, there's a history here. And a lot of this is wrapped up in race. And still, we're afraid to say it. I say we, not all of us. Some are. Does anything change in that regard? Are we more prepared, perhaps, after the storming of our own Capitol to discuss the racial undertones present in our politics right now? It seems like Joe Biden uh, and Kamala Harris are taking it on directly. I mean, and you even have, you know, you have Joe Scarborough, Morning Joe, I mean, going off on MSNBC saying that (laughs) if these were black people, this wouldn't have effing happened. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And that is something for Joe to say that. Yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, I think that there are there will always be those who will say, what does race have to do with that? I think that's just a part of American politics. But I, I do think that you are seeing people after what happened over the summer and certainly after this happened who are saying, look, we cannot ignore that there are differences here. Um, and as you said. This is not something like, I mean, you're carrying the Confederate flag, you know, from the 1860s. Yeah. This is. Uh, it's not new. It's not new. We still, you know? we still fight it's that war. It's not about like, states' rights. You know, mm-hmm. like, it's, what, what is going on in yeah. 2021? The one yeah. thing I, I want to caution about when we talk about the Capitol Police and everything you guys say is valid, but I think when they're criticized and when the response is criticized, in all things, we got to sort of separate the generals and the troops, right? That mm. a lot of these police officers, the rank and file who are out there, were hung out to dry. They were not given the equipment they need. They were not prepped properly. I think a lot there of the- enough cops out there, period. Right. And, and yeah. who made that decision, right? Like you always have yes. to hold the right people accountable. And the leadership failed here. And that is why the chief of police and the House and Senate sergeant at arms were all forced out this week because they failed, period, full stop. But I think it's worth noting that the Capitol Police Union, and there are a lot of people of color on the Capitol Police Force. I've been in that building for a very long time. It's a very diverse force, very gender Mm. diverse force, too. They Mm. put out a very lengthy statement condemning their own leadership, saying that they were not given what they needed to secure the building and that they made real-time decisions to put, in their words, lives over property. So they knew that they were letting people destroy the building, but they said, and they are correct, that no one that works in the Capitol, no lawmaker, no staffer, no member... Uh, that is allowed to be in that building was hurt that day. Now, yes, people were hurt, but they're saying our job was to keep them safe and we did our jobs. And as much as there are a lot of visual images, I've seen them too, you know, opening up the gate, helping the woman down the steps. I I think there are 
also a lot of stories, and I've heard talk to my friends directly who feel like their lives were saved by Capitol Police that day, who were being attacked, mm. who were being had to be helped into rooms. Police officers, mm. single people trying to hold people back in hallways to give people time to get to safe locations. So I, I don't think that the entirety of the force should be condemned, but I think it's yeah. fair to point to the people that led them to say that they failed them and that that cannot yeah. happen again. And yes, if that was a crowd of black people outside of the Capitol, that would not have played out the same way. And I think all honest people can acknowledge that reality. Yeah. What is the biggest takeaway for you both from this entirely absurd week of news? Uh, my my biggest takeaway is, and I've kind of beat this drum the entire Trump uh, administration, um, but words matter and it mm. has mattered this entire time and ultimately what you say and the things that you put out there they have an effect you know i think one of the things that i've thought about it a lot this week and just how lawmakers responded but i thought a lot about what mitt romney said about how if you want to honor these voters you don't do it by telling them you'll get a commission to study voter fraud or try to appease them you do it by telling them the truth and I think that's why you see a lot of anger right now at senators like Ted Cruz of Texas and Josh Hawley of Missouri for objecting to the Electoral College results, because so many of their colleagues believe that they know better. And just a reminder that like it's just hard to tell people the truth when you're a politician, and the people that do should be given credit for it. And mm. Mitt Romney was one yeah. of those Republicans this week. You know who I always count on to tell me the truth? Who? Aisha and Sue. Y'all too. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> I honestly was like, which Real Housewives character is this going (laughs) to refer to? All right, listeners, coming up, NPR Susan Davis and Aisha Roscoe play my favorite game, Who Said That? The news moves fast. Listen to the NPR News Now podcast to keep up. We update stories as they evolve every hour. So no matter when you listen, you get the news as close to live as possible on your schedule. Subscribe to or follow the NPR News Now podcast. Let's uh, play a game. I want us to turn away from the week of politics for a bit and talk about Please. other things that happened this week. So we're going to play my favorite game. It's called Who Said That? Ooh, Y'all have both played before. It's really quite simple. I share a quote from the week, and you tell me who said it. The winner, per usual, gets nothing but bragging rights. <laughs> I'm ready. All right. First quote. Uh, for this one, just tell me who we're talking about. She is serious about taking the bar exam and becoming a lawyer. She is serious about a prison reform campaign. Meanwhile, Blank is talking about running for president and saying other crazy stuff, and she's just had enough of it. Kim Kardashian. Yeah, Kim and Kanye. Uh, Apparently they're getting divorced. Yeah, that's what they said. Did you miss that big news this week, Sue? What have you been up to? I saw saw (laughs) the reporting that it was likely to happen, but I didn't see the report. Is it done? Like, is it public that it's happening? It's still rumors. You know, someone said that Kris Jenner is, uh, her Christian name is uh, Sources Say. (laughs) 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 That is not my joke. That's that's what I was but it was a good name. I would not put it past Mama Chris. (laughs) No, and the thing that always makes me laugh is that this is always like the people that break it is like E! News and like they work for E! News. Like of course it's like, of course they're the sources for it. Like just put your name on it. My God. Yeah, yeah. 
So that quote actually was an unnamed source to page six on these rumors that Kim K and Kanye might be getting a divorce. And I got to say, as weird as their relationship has been and has always been, I found it strangely comforting to see two weirdo celebrities stay together that long. I don't know. I was never a fan of them, um, <laughs> no. but I understand why people, I mean, they are two self-obsessed people who got together, um, so I can understand why people maybe felt like, you know, that could work. Yeah. I will say, whatever happens, I do not want a Kanye West album about this breakup. Don't do it, Kanye. <laughs> oh, my goodness, Jack. You'd still <laughs> listen to it, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> no. I think you both got that point. Here is the next quote. I am deeply sorry for having precipitated more hurt in the world, for having prolonged or exacerbated it by fighting back and being flippant when confronted, and for taking my Twitter feed offline yesterday instead of facing the music. This is a musician who got in trouble for his style of parenting. I know, Bean Dad. It's Bean Dad. I was going to say Donald Trump Jr. Just to be. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Aisha, set up Bean Dad for our listeners because if you weren't on Twitter, you have no idea what it is. So there was this guy who I had never heard of before this, but apparently his daughter came to him. She was maybe nine, and she was like, she was hungry. And so he was like, well, why don't you eat some beans? And then she was like, but I don't know how to open the can. And then he was like, well, get that can opener and figure it out and he just like (laughs) documented it in this very pompous way like basically saying that for nine hours or something some ridiculous amount of time he made his daughter like fiddle around with this can opener to try to figure it out and he kept saying she's not mechanically inclined oh my goodness it was just the sort of thing that you would only see on twitter and it was just like what is wrong with you just give your child some food feed the child Feed like the child. I don't have kids, but I'm guessing the only thing more annoying than a kid who's hungry is a kid who's hungry futzing around with the can opener for six hours. <laughs> and frustrated. <laughs> that sounds like torture. It was just horrible. I want to know where Bean Mom was in all this. <laughs> Bean Mom has yes. left the premises. Yep. Bean Mom, Bean Mom is... came home and Bean <laughs> Mom was pissed. <laughs> <laughs> Who got that point? Aisha? I you got that was Aisha. I got, yeah, okay. I got Alrighty. Here is the last quote. I love this one. It's very simple. I did not. I did not miss you. Who said that? I did not. I did not miss what? you. She's one of the hosts of a daytime TV show. Oh, Joe Joy Behar. Yes, Joy Behar. <laughs> so Joy, and Megan McCain. Yes. yes. So Joy Behar is one of the co-hosts of The View. She's one of the more outspoken liberal co-hosts. And she was talking to her other co-host, Megan McCain, who is more conservative on The View. Megan McCain had been out for baby leave, and she was back on the show this week. I I know what you're talking. I'm talking about, I'm talking about somebody Joy. You missed me so much when I was on maternity leave. You missed me so much. You missed fighting with me. I did not. I did not miss you. As someone who watches The View quite a bit, or at least the clips online, 
I really don't think any of those other co-hosts like Megan McCain. I don't, I don't think so. No, <laughs> my my mom is a big view watcher, and so she would watch, especially when Megan McCain started. And my mom is not a big fan of Megan McCain. I don't think my mom would mind me saying that. And she would always <laughs> be like, "She don't need to be on the show," and we would talk about it. <laughs> but no, it seemed like those other ladies do not really do not get along. Yeah. Well, uh. That is the game. Uh, Aisha, I think you won. I know. I've been on Twitter too much this week. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. Listen, I'm so glad to have had this time with y'all this week. A truly busy week for any reporters covering politics. Thanks for the work you do. I hope you get some rest this weekend. Aisha Roscoe, Susan Davis, political reporters from PR. Thank y'all for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Sam. Thanks for having me. I always love being on. Oh, it's a pleasure. You say hello? Say Hello. 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 <laughs> Who am I talking to right now? Reggie Trice. And Hello, hey, Reggie. Reggie. How are you? You want to say hey? Come here. Good. I want to get y'all on the radio. <laughs> Can you both say, on the count of three, this is NPR? Three, two, one. Three, two. Okay. Just put up. You got to go one of real fast, crying. Gabrielle. This, this is live radio. This is NPR. Okay. <laughs> I started sorry, chaos. I'm it's sorry. Chaos. It's my fault. It's, I, it's my fault. Oh, no. Wait, let's just talk to Annalise. This is NPR. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag, and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hey Sam, my name is Caitlin from Orange County, California, and the best thing that happened to me this week, after so many months socially distant from my parents, and 14 days of quarantine after seeing my last students before winter break, I got to have a real, in-person, mini New Year's party with my brother and my parents. Hi Sam, this is Stephanie, and I am recording this message from the fire escape of my new Brooklyn apartment. After two weeks of quarantining and multiple COVID tests, the best part of my week was today I finally left my apartment and made a safe trek into the city to see the Rockefeller Christmas tree. Hey Sam, this is Lexi from San Francisco, and the best part of my week was after spending the summer and fall in full PPE at our city's drive through COVID testing site, I finally got my first shot of the vaccine yesterday. Hi Sam, this is Kenzie. And Mike. The best thing that happened to us this week is that our son turned three months old on Christmas Eve. This milestone is even more significant because we spent last Christmas mourning the loss of his brother to stillbirth. So as much as we miss his brother, watching our son grow and reach another milestone is the best thing that happened not only this week, but all year. Hi Sam, this is Allie from Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. The best part of my week literally just happened um i hugged my grandma for the first time since january (laughs) i thought that um or i worried that i would never get to hug her again and i've been living at home now for about a month and i randomly heard her call up from the stairs come here i want to hug you and she's so tiny, but the amount of force that she exerted when she hugged me um, is really nothing like I've ever felt. And I don't think I'll ever forget that hug for the rest of my life. Thanks for the show. 
Uh, thank you so much for all you do. And it's been a pleasure listening to you this year. Thanks so much for your podcast. It's gotten me through a lot this year. Take care. Wow. A hug to remember for the rest of your life. I love that. Thanks to all those listeners you just heard for sharing their joy in a strange and crazy and kind of dark week. You just heard from Allie, Kinsey and Mike, Lexi, Stephanie, and Caitlin. Thank y'all so much. Listeners, don't forget, you can be a part of this segment as well. You can send your best things to us at any point throughout any week. Just record yourself on your phone and send that voice memo to me via email to samsanders at npr.org. That's samsanders at npr.org. This week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Janae West, Anjali Sastry, and Andrea Gutierrez. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. Our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grunman. All right, listeners, till next time, be good to yourselves. Get some rest. Find something to smile about. I'm Sam Sanders. We will talk soon. <laughs>